We are called to be remarkable, and we will continue our series in doing that. Thanks for joining us. I trust the worship was great. It was an awesome time in communion. Thank you, Jesus, for the blood applied. Here we are as uh, we're working our way into now what is October, and uh, I trust you've been blessed by the First Peter series. Many of you have gotten one of our journals we've been giving out. Make sure you get one. If you haven't, we have them in the, each foyer. If you've overfilled your journal, feel free to get another one if that's what it, you need. Um, but we want you interacting with the words of God, and uh, I trust that it's been an encouragement to you so far as we're seeking to be remarkable, what we're called to be, live in such a way that people ask us about what is going on inside that enables you to live that way. And so today, as we continue Remarkable, each week I've had something coming down that road that we didn't necessarily anticipate. And this week, we got coming down the road a Russian um, police vehicle. So what's going on with that? How many of you have uh, interacted at all with the book Insanity of God? In it has many stories written by a written by Nick Ripkin of different people that have demonstrated an incredible, incredible passion for Jesus Christ, kind of exemplary faith, if you will. And uh, I, had a, I had somebody share with me this week, a sister in Christ, she said, have you ever heard the story about uh, Pastor Dimitri? I said, I'm gonna have to go check it out. And I read it, and it inspired this uh, opening illustration, for it was uh, remarkable. He was doing a Bible study in his home, and um, obviously, it's more of an underground endeavor um, for the country he lived in, was opposed to many of the things that he was trying to present. And uh, the Bible study continued to grow. Some 150 people were there the night the police came and arrested Pastor Dimitri. He was thrown into prison for his faith and for teaching um, scripture. And he went into prison and found himself to be the only believer in the prison, separated from everyone he loved. And he would spend the next 17 years in jail. Now, now there are some people in here today that aren't 17 years old. Imagine spending that much time imprisoned for your faith. Do you think at some point within that time, you would question whether God is hearing you? 17 years? Yet his faith was so strong, it exemplified itself, especially in some of his behavior. Each morning at dawn, he would get up and he'd stand at attention at, at the rising of the sun and he would sing what was called his heart song. And he'd sing this each morning and it wasn't that well received for it was waking prisoners up it was annoying prisoners, and he'd begin to sing this, and they would clang things on the prison bars while he's singing. They would yell to him to be quiet, and I'm be that was the censored version of how they talked to him. It got so ugly, I guess, I mean, I read that even sometimes human waste was thrown at him for singing this song. But, but day after day, he would get up and sing it. 17 years go by. He's out in the courtyard of the prison and he spots paper and pen. Big deal. And he grabs a paper, he goes back to his cell and he begins to write out every verse he can think of in his head on paper. How many verses do you think you could write 
If you didn't have your cell phone, if you didn't have your Bible, if you didn't have any of that, how much of God's word have you sown into your life that if all you could do is write out what you know, what would you have? Well, Pastor Dimitri had quite a bit, and he wrote them throughout his cell and placed them on some places that they would stick, and he, and he had these up in his room. This is the type of pressure Peter writes into. Because Pastor Dimitri's verses were found and punishment was declared. And he was going to be brutally beaten. And he's removed from his cell and they begin to march him down the center of the prison. Prison wardens and guards right on either side. This this is the environment Peter's writing into. For, for the people were afraid of Caesar Nero. He's going to whip them, beat them, torture them. And if they continue in their faith, they might even experience being burned alive. For he was building places like Circus Maximus to make sport of these Christians. And they too found themselves vulnerable, afraid, rejected, suffering. And into that world, chapter one of Peter is such an encouragement. For he says, despite all your circumstances, anyone in here been rejected? Anyone in here feel their suffering? He says, despite your circumstances, you can live with remarkable hope, remarkable joy, Last week, remarkable mindset, building your life around your focal point. Jesus Christ, some of you may be gone does an interior design project after last week. But today, Peter's really gonna lean into this idea of living a holy life. If you have your journals, you probably see on the top, the subtitle is called to be holy or living a life of holiness. We talked about there being two words to holiness. Two aspects, excuse me, of the definition of holiness. One, being distinct, set apart. And we said, we're gonna do that by building our entire life around the focal point. Jesus is our centerpiece work of art and we're designing all the other aspects of the rooms of our life around him. But this week, I wanna lean into another aspect of holiness and that is a reverence and awe and respect of the holy and perfect mighty God we serve. Peter's going to talk about being remarkable, in my opinion, through the lens of reverence today. And so we'll call this section of scripture remarkable reverence. Do you know what that word means? We don't use it too much, right? We don't use reverence in our vocabulary a ton. But reverence carries the idea of respect and regard. Let me speak to the men first, because there's a good chance you don't have a ton of people in your life you respect. So let's talk to the guys first. Ladies, you do a better job at this than us. What does it take for someone to earn your respect? What does it take for you to go, you know what? That is somebody I look at, and I have a regard and a respect for them. Ladies, what do you look for in someone to say, you know what, I look at her and I go, I got a deep respect and regard for her. 
It's hard to get on that list, isn't it? Because for us to respect and regard someone, we're going to look at them as someone that we want to emulate, someone we watch, someone we're trying to gain some things from. And Peter goes, that's where the world I want you in. I want you to be holy as he is holy. There's a remarkable reverence to that. But, but, but there's something cool about reverence that's a little bit more than just respect and regard. It carries the idea of deep, deep respect, deep regard. There's people you might respect. Maybe they're good at the craft that you enjoy. Maybe they're good at the, the sport that you love to play. Maybe they're incredible in, in your area of work. But a deep respect, it's almost like I'd like to pattern my life after that. And so Peter's going to take us to the end of the chapter today with pushing us through this remarkable reverence. We're going to look at three categories of this remarkable reverence, this remarkable respect and regard. The prison guards were carrying him on either side. They're marching him to his beating. 17 years of getting up at dawn and singing. Something remarkable happened in that jail cell. The 1,500 or so prisoners, when they saw Pastor Dimitri was headed out to be brutally, brutally treated, they stood at attention and in unison sang the song that, guess what, they all had memorized now, out of reverence for Pastor Dimitri. If you read the account, the guards step back and they go, who are you that he would get this kind of response through the prison? And I can hear Pastor Peter say, attaboy, Dimitri. They're asking for the hope that is with inside you. Why? Because of how you lived your life. I'm gonna say, that that is remarkable. And today, may we, out of our deep respect, not only for those who have suffered well under persecution, but out of our deep respect for God, may we look at these verses and get a fuller understanding of the holiness we're called to in Jesus Christ. Heavenly Father, use the text today to inspire us and encourage us May we keep the enemy away from defeating us and judging us. And may we walk out of here desiring to live differently because we visited this place. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Now, now, Peter, I'm gonna remind you, has changed so much. This was a burly man's man, alpha male type. I mean, we see him in scripture going, I'm going fishing. He doesn't go, hey guys, do you want to all go fishing? He's the type who goes, I'm going fishing. In other words, if you're not coming, I don't care. I'm the leader here. Peter was that kind of guy. And into that world, he now writes with such pastoral care and comfort. Watch this. He says this, and if you call him his father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, I'd like you to conduct yourselves with fear during your time in exile. You say, where do you hear the pastoral warmth? Well, remember I told you there's an English level here, and then right underneath it, I want you to imagine a, a Greek level, which is what the New Testament is written in, um, and, and, or excuse me, translated into from. And, and it says this basically, since you call on him, 
You know, if you read Peter's words and you kind of interpret it like, since you called on him, Peter is more like, hey guys, he's changed so much. I got a feeling we have no idea how broken he was after he betrayed Jesus three times. I don't think we fully grasp how broken Peter was for he dearly loves Jesus and he takes every moment in his book to talk about the one he revered. He goes, since guys, you call him as father who judges impartially. There's a word, impartially, okay? So without favoritism, okay? He judges based on reality, not who we pretend to be on Sunday, okay? Not, not who we hope others see, right? But he bases on who we really are. See, holiness incorporates more than just our actions, although it definitely does, but it incorporates our thought life, right? For from, from our thoughts is what the wow speaks from, right? And our thoughts, even if you don't outwardly speak them, our thoughts are like spoken words to God. And so he can be an impartial judge and he judges according to each one's deeds. So conduct yourselves okay, looking at behavior, with fear during your time in exile. Hey, while you're here, I want you to conduct yourselves in fear. You say, oh man, God, I thought God doesn't want me to be afraid. And therefore, now we gotta start defining fear correctly. This fear is not, ah, go hide. Oh my goodness, I don't know what to do. That's not the fear we're talking about. This fear is, ready, a deep awe, a deep respect, a deep regard for God. While you live here, live with a deep, deep reverence for God. Why? Well, one, because you love him, but two, because you will stand before him one day. He says, look, he says, the judge will judge one according to our deeds. To think that we will not give an account for our behavior on earth is not a biblical thing. In fact, it's extremely biblical to understand that we as believers here will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Paul refers it to the Bema seat, the seat where Christ judges believers for their works on earth. And he's an impartial judge. And he gives out rewards to those who lived a life for him. Now, now, please, I don't know if this was ever preached to you, but it's not a place of condemnation, okay? For there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ. Oh, amen and thank you. But it is a time where our deeds are done, or, or excuse me, are rewarded, and they will either be rewarded or, or will suffer loss. What's the idea there? Well, in Corinthians, it talks about how some of our actions will be burned up and some of them will be rewarded. I mean, is it possible to serve at church and not be rewarded for it because of a poor attitude? Absolutely. In fact, pastors are even commissioned, do not serve the bride of Christ out of compulsion. In other words, you don't have to shepherd the church. You get to shepherd the church. And if you ever lose that mentality, understand that that very well could be a work that's burned up, even as wonderful as it might appear. 
We will stand before the judgment seat of Christ and it will be a day where we're rewarded for what's been done on earth and let it be a motivation. You say, I just don't know if we should make that. Paul made it his ambition in life to be prepared for the day he stood before Jesus and gave an account for his actions on earth. I hope that speaks to us and say, look, look, I want to live a life in such a way that it can be rewarded. Now, don't worry. You're in God's presence. You're not gonna have your sin nature so that when you get rewarded, you go, hey, everybody, look at this. Or I only have like one trophy. He got eight, okay? That's condemnation. This is a place of the well done, thy good and faithful. Oh, Paul, Paul talks about it. Other New Testament teachers talk about it. They talk about these crowns that can come up. Oh, there's like five crowns mentioned in your New Testament that can be given out the judgment seat of Christ. The crown of victory. Specific crown kind of for those who have shown their faithfulness to God. They've had a chance to be loyal to one entity or another and they chose God. How about the crown of rejoicing in 1 Thessalonians? Paul brings this crown up. Those who prioritized evangelism and sharing the gospel with others. Oh, there's a crown of rejoicing, Paul says, coming to you, church of Thessalonica. In 2 Timothy, Paul writes, there's a crown of righteousness for those who live the life characterized of holiness. There's a crown of life, James 1.12 says, for those who persevere during suffering. There's a crown of glory. 1 Peter 5 brings this up. It's often referred to as the pastor's crown, but I believe it goes for everyone who's accepted the call to shepherd God's flock. You say, if I get these crowns, what do you think I'll do with them? Like, do I have like a, a, a trophy case in heaven? No. In fact, I think the best indication of what we're gonna do with them is actually found in Revelation. The 24 elders, I truly believe represent the church. We don't have time to go into this. You can watch our Revelation series. But as representatives of the church age, it says the 24 elders they bowed down and threw their crowns down as if to say, Jesus, we could not have done this if it's not through you. Casting down their golden crowns, you may have heard the hymn, around the glassy sea. That comes from a, a revelation text that says they take their crowns and they go, Jesus, it's all about you. I wrote this in my notes. There is a remarkable respect that goes along with holiness. A remarkable respect. I, I worked at multiple camps when I was right out of college, and every once in a while we'd have junior high week, okay? And junior high week is a special week. All you teachers out there who teach junior high students, you are gonna have to get an extra crown. I will make sure of it if God, I say, Lord, give them something, okay? They need something else, right? But junior high week, it was always that. And, and that was oftentimes where you used um, some of your younger leaders too, to give them an opportunity in front of teenagers. And this one, this one kind of, oh man, 18, 19 year old kid got up and he wanted to make sure the kids knew that they can approach Jesus because he's their friend. And he gets up and he goes, all right, guys, we're going to pray. Hey, yo, daddy, what's up? Now I knew my camp director and I knew his passion for the word of God. And as he continued to go on, we love you, Jesus. We're all here. You're my daddy. I'm like, this kid's dead. This kid's going to die. And they finished the prayer, and, and he said amen, and he walked off. And you could even feel in the crowd, 
Are there any young people in here? You know when adults are trying way too hard and you're like, oh, that's so sad. Look how hard they're trying to be cool. You know, teen, I've seen it. I've had it. Have, I've watched teens look at me like, Chris, stop. That's enough. Okay, but, but he's trying so hard to be cool and not even the teens think it was that cool what he did. It's kind, of, it kind of disrespectful. We're in our counselor meeting and our, and our director comes in, he sits down. He goes, hey guys, I just wanna talk a little bit about how we lead. This is on the Friday, you always debrief. How we lead kids. And we're like, oh, here it comes, it's gonna come. We knew it was come. And he goes, for example, when we pray, guys, let's remember who we're talking to. I'm still t- talking about this event. I was probably... 21 at the time, I'm still talking about this in my 40s. It had that big an impact on me. When you're talking to God, yes, he is your dad. Yes, he is your friend. But let's make sure we understand we're talking to the king of kings. And when he said that, we all went, mm-hmm. This isn't somebody we want to flippantly talk to. This isn't somebody we want to go, yo, what's up? Show him respect. And he said, if it doesn't make sense to you, let me ask you this. Would any of you talk to me that way? And we were all like, no. So why would you talk to him that way? Let's see if we can lead our young people to respect the God they pray to. Boy, that spoke to me. It changed the way I prayed in front of people when I pray in public prayers. You make sure they all understand, Chris, that you know who you're talking to, even if they don't know who you're talking to. And Peter says, this is important because you know something. You have a remarkable respect because you know this. Look, he says this. Knowing that you are ransomed, there it is, bought with a price, right? Some of you watch these movie shows where somebody's been kidnapped and there's a ransom. You're gonna have to pay this much money to get them back. Peter says, you understand Jesus paid the ransom from the feudal ways you inherited from your forefathers. You had these feudal ways. Now, part of their forefathers, Old Testament slaves were ransomed with money. And the cost to get this was laid out with money. And Peter says, you, as a child of God, were ransomed. You were bought with a price. And then he goes on, he says, not with perishable things. This is a big word here. Not with perishable things like silver or gold. Not with perishable things like $20 bills or $100 bills. Not with that, but with the precious Peter goes, precious blood. This is the blood that was shed to pay the price. It's precious. Whenever you see precious, there it carries the idea of the entirety of the atonement, the entirety of the work of Christ on the cross. You weren't, you weren't bought with money. A life was given for you. Nobody put money down. No rich guy hooked you up. Somebody put their life down for you. 
Peter goes, you understand that. So you have a remarkable respect, but he keeps pushing into this. And he goes, because when any chance Peter gets to talk about Jesus, he goes off and he says this. He points out four things. If you, if you want to get your numbers out, here he goes. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last time for your sake. He was foreknown. Here's my first one. Peter's wants you to understand something. Foreknowledge means he existed before time. He was known there was a relationship before time. Any religion that teaches Jesus is a created being needs to come back to this verse. Jesus was foreknown before the foundation of the world. He wasn't created. He is eternal. That's the point. Peter was adamant. His audience understand that Jesus revealed himself. That's the first one, revealed, because he was eternal. And then he became manifest. That means to become, become revealed and, and to, to be seen as what? The redeemer. He became manifest to redeem us or to ransom us. And so one, he's the revealed one, he is eternal. Two, he is redeemed, he is the rescuer, but he's got two more he wants to point out. This is all done for you. He says this, Jesus was this, who through him, we are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory. So, uh, so I see, raised him from the dead and gave him glory. Right here you see the third thing Peter wants to point out. He is resurrected, which proves he's God. And then fourth, God gave him glory. What's that a reference to, you think? That's a reference to his ascension. God gave him glory and raised him up and he is rewarded. So I see four things. Peter says, hey, let's have a healthy respect because he did these four things for us. He revealed himself, he's eternal. He redeemed us, he's the rescuer. He resurrected, he's God. He's rewarded, he is holy. So I put, we gotta have a remarkable regard for what he's done. We had something when I was a little guy at church in my junior high years um, called Watchmen, or like it was like Christian Service Brigade. We had Watchmen, Sentries, things like that. And, um, and we would pray at these things. And, and kids would come from various backgrounds. But I remember one specific night, and I'm still talking about it today, so it must have been remarkable. I remember one specific night, we were linked up. We always linked up at the end of the night. Link up, link up. Who's gonna be the weakest link? Not me, you know. That really communicates. We're all together and it's time for prayer. And our watchman leader started praying, dear Heavenly Father and, and um, junior high teachers, again, extra rewards for you. When there's prayer and 13 and 14 year old boys are involved, there's also tickling, pinching, poking, punching. It's like a demonstration of love for one another. So if they're linked up, there's, <clears throat> oh, the whole time. And this starts up in the group. And I'm standing there. I know the watchman leader's not gonna be okay with this. I'm standing there and I'm watching. <laughs> Heavenly Father, we wanna come to you in prayer tonight. And he hears it. <laughs> and uh, as we, he stops. Young people, you ever have a teacher do that? They're talking and they just stop, kind of like, I'll wait. He stops. I'm like, we're gonna die right here at church. And everybody's silent. And he goes, and so Lord, like that was his grace. Oh, and so Lord, now as uh, we close this night, <clears throat> it starts back up. 
he stops. He goes, gentlemen, now the room looks up. We stopped prayer. Gentlemen, I just had to stop talking to my Savior because you're goofing around, guys. I'm talking to the one who died for me. My heavenly father gave his son's life for me. I have sons, boys. I have sons. And if any of one died, if any of them died so that you guys could live, when I'm talking to the one that allowed that to happen, I think it deserves a little respect and attention. Would you guys be joking if my son died and I was talking to you? Well, at that point, we've all learned our lesson already and we just all want to pray for ourselves. But that stayed with me. Because what was finished there was a lesson he taught me. It was this. He finished with saying, I don't care if you don't respect me, guys. That's not important. I may not have earned your respect, but I know he has, and I know he deserves it. I have leveraged that in multiple environments of my life. Hey, look, you may not respect me as a pastor or as a leader. You may not. But don't let that deter you from respecting him because he died for me, paid for me, was resurrected and rewarded, and I'm talking to him. There was a big price given for my life, and that was our heavenly father's son. Remarkable regard Peter had. And so, so it's almost like he got himself right. Get yourselves right. Get yourselves pure. Having purified your souls by obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love. So we got respect, we got remark, regard. There's one more aspect Peter really wants to push into holiness. I told you there's gonna be three. He says, having purified your souls by obedience. It, it really seems that Peter has a link between obedience and holiness. And I noted the obedience is to what? The truth. What's the truth? God's word. Holiness is exemplified when it is obedient to the truth. Here's why this is important. You live in a world that is attacking anything that claims to be truth. Redefining what truth is. Peter said, let me help everybody in the room. The word of God is truth. And when you obey it, the word means to hear under, not talk over, hear under, not giggle during, hear under, not goof around, hear under the word of God. It will lead to a behavior that's remarkable. It will lead to sincere. The idea carries the idea of not being two-faced. Sincere love, not fake love. It's kind of like you understand, there's a difference, you've heard me say this, between niceness and kindness, right? I can be nice to people I don't like. I have real trouble being kind to people I don't like because kindness 
is the desire to wish and see good happen for another person. Peter says, I want you to be sincere, so you've got to purify your souls and you've got to obey because you are called to love one another earnestly. I, 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 wanna, I, wanna, I think I brought this, yeah. Some of you do some of these band workouts, right? You're like, mm, mm, right? This is the idea. I'm, I'm going to act this verse out. I'm going to act out this word in its original context, okay? We're going to act this out. You are to love one another earnestly. How many of you obeying the truth? It's hard for you to love people right now. Peter goes, I see you. Peter, Nero is disgusting. I know. Nero is a fool. I know. Nero is a pagan worshiper. I know. And these people follow him. And you know what they say about me? I know. You're asking me to live differently? Yep. It's really stretching me. I know. That's what the word means. To be stretched. If you are being stretched right now to love people, Peter will go, yes. That's what you've been called to do. That will lead you to being remarkable because this is the third point of holiness. There is a remarkable responsibility to it. Holiness reveres the truth of God's word and part of the aspect of holiness, Peter says, is to carry out your responsibility. And so he gives us a threefold idea behind this remarkable reverence. And here it is. One, it's a remarkable respect. A respect for what? A respect that you will give an account for how you live your life here. You will stand before a judge about how you live your life. Not for condemnation, but for reward. But you best believe, Paul's very clear, you're gonna wanna do as much as you can for Christ on this side of eternity out of a remarkable regard for the sacrifice of God's son. Live out your lives differently. And out of a remarkable responsibility to love others the way he loved you. And so I started thinking, how could I best demonstrate my respect and my regard and, and even my responsibility to hear my heavenly father who I deem as holy, holy, holy. How could I best do that today when I walk out? And, and, I, and I really kept leaning back to this obedience to the truth. Grandpas are in here, okay? Grandpas are in here. There is nothing more enjoyable for a grandpa from what I gather. There is nothing more you could do to respect grandpa. There's nothing more you could do to regard grandpa than to listen to his words. It makes him feel important. It makes him feel relevant. It makes him feel like you wanna hear what I have to say. All of us know this. When someone wants to hear from you, it makes you feel valuable. When someone listens to what you have to say, it makes you feel good. When someone cares enough to want to be around you consistently, it makes you feel loved. And so the opposite is true as well. 
When you don't listen to them, when you ignore everything they say, when you never want to be around them, when you barely pay attention as they're talking, it makes them feel like they're nobody to you. And so I thought the best thing I could probably do for my heavenly father and my reverence and respect for him is to read his word, to hear under his word. There is a man in scripture that God said, now, if there's a guy who's after my heart, it's that guy. You know who he was? David. And David writes this awesome little text about how much he loves this word of God. How many of you got one of these at home? How many of you got four of these at home? He says, I love this thing. Now, keep in mind, David, he didn't have, he didn't have your Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John. He didn't have your precious first and second Corinthians. He didn't have James. He didn't have Revelation. He had basically some of the Pentateuch, right? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. So David's not working with everything we have to work with. And this is what David says in Psalm 119. He says, oh, how I love your law. I love it. It's my meditation all the day. I think about it all the time. And then he says this, your commandment makes me wiser than my enemies for it's always with me. When I read the scripture, I feel wiser than my enemies. They don't know some of the things I know because I read the Bible. Have you ever felt like, man, I literally know some of the things that are coming in this world because I've read this thing. It's almost like an advantage. He says, yeah, I have an advantage over my enemies. And then he says this, I have more understanding than all my teachers for your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the aged, for I keep your precepts. He says, this thing is my teacher. It's like I got a professor that goes with me and it makes me wiser than the people around me, even those who are more experienced. Now, I was a leader who was thrusted into a position at a younger age where I was leading at times men 20, 25 years older than me in experience. And I noticed the times that they would listen to my leadership the most is when I leveraged scripture. It was like it took my youth away. And now I have been in rooms where the youngest person in the room, young people out there, listen to me, the youngest person in the room was the wisest person in the room. Why? Because they were following scripture when people even of experience maybe weren't. David goes, yeah, when you read the Bible, it's like you have a teacher who guides you and makes you wiser than your years. He goes, I hold back my feet from every evil way in order to keep your word. Oh man, his word is such protection. It's almost like he looked at this as a resource manual to not ruin his life. If I read this, I probably won't ruin my life. And the times he disobeyed it were the times he failed. He looked at this as his protection. He says, I do not turn away from your rules. For you yourself have taught me. It's as if he looks at the Bible as it's written just to him. This is when your faith grows up fast. When you begin to realize you're not just lumped into Christianity, but that God specifically chose you, that he is your personal savior, your whole spiritual life takes on a whole nother realm. David read this as if his mentor wrote it to him. He said, it's my delight. He goes, oh, watch this. How sweet are your words to my taste? Sweeter than honey to my mouth. How many of you like to eat honey? You're like, I don't know. That's because you have Dairy Queen. <laughs> David had wheat, wheat and barley. That's all David had. So David got some honey and was like, oh my word. 
Like it might have been the first thing. He, I mean, it was like Pringles to him, right? You know, like, like, I mean, this was like a big deal. Oh, it's like honey. So this word was delight. And then he says, he says this, through your precepts, I get understanding. Therefore, I hate, I hate lies. It's my truth. This is my truth. I hate lies. And then he finally finishes with one of the most famous verses in all scripture. He says, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. It's a light to my path. It helps me see what's ahead. And it's a lamp to my feet. It helps me with every step of my way. But the part I love the most about what David's ruminating on, he's saying, this thing, this thing right here is mine. You yourself taught me as you get to higher levels of education. I remember one of my first graduate classes. I go in and I get a syllabus, okay? Um, young people, teenagers, as you go into college, you get these things, syllabuses, you find out the whole year's like, okay? Now, in the syllabus, it tells you your textbook. And I remember this, I'm, I'm in a theological seminary, and I, and I get the textbook, and I noticed that my professor's name is the author of my textbook, So guys, you need to read your textbook. You need to read the book I wrote. That changes the whole class when it's him. Hey, yeah, I didn't read the assignment. Okay, you didn't read my book. Now, what if I told you this Bible, David looked at it as if his professor was teaching, he wrote a book and David takes it to another step and he wrote it just for you. Wait, excuse me, professor? Chris, I wrote that for you. I wrote the book and the whole book's gone, but I also wrote it for you. That's the power of God. He wrote it just for you. Folks, you know you walk around with something that's been written just for you, yet some of us, no condemnation here, can't even find where it is. I got a buddy. He will not put the Bible on any other bookshelf than the top in his house. If he sees one of his kids lay it down, hey, whoa, 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 that goes up here. He said, I wanted that to be an illustration for the rest of their life. There is no other book that gets preeminence over this one. That's my everything you're holding right there. Wow, David, I want that. Yeah, because Peter says, yeah, 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 because that's what it's all about. You have been born again, not of, there it is, perishable seed, but of imperishable seed through the living and living and abiding word of God. Wait a minute, wait a minute. You're telling me that this book is alive? Yes. It grows with you. If I have seed that can grow, when I plant it into something, it will grow. It will continue to grow. If I've got a watch and I plant it into the ground, kids, will more watches grow? Look at this watch farm we got here, sweetheart. This is awesome. Right? If that happens, I can make a lot of money here on this earth. That's because the watch is perishable. It's made of silver and gold. But the word of God is imperishable. It's alive. And it abides in you. It stays with you. And I'm going to tell you a little secret that some of the older folks know in this church. Have you experienced the word of God growing up with you? where verses that meant a lot to you as a little girl, my word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against you, were there when you were challenged in your integrity and you said, thy word have I hid in my heart. Kids, we're not doing it because I've hid God's word in my heart that it might not sin against God. 
and you felt the word of God grow with you. Why does it do that? How can it do that? Mankind writes books and they're popular for like a year. New York Times, bestseller, and then they're gone. The Bible doesn't go anywhere. Even after some of the greatest leaders and historical people of all time tried to distinguish it or extinguish it, they can't get rid of this thing because the word of God is alive and it's active. And if I just plant a little seed, it's going to return, not in vain, scripture says. All scripture goes forth and it's not in vain. It's one of the reasons Pastor Chris puts all the verses on the slides. I've had people say to me sometimes, man, you put all the verses? Yeah, because even if I stink that day and I can't hold one person's attention, they might read that verse and that verse is living and active because it's the words of God and it could plant a seed in them that starts to grow and maybe somebody else will one day cultivate that seed, but they heard and read the words of God. Folks, where the word of God is preached, the hand of God is seen. Let me say it again. Where the word of God is preached, the hand of God is is seen. It's us who make this life a little more complicated than it needs to be. You've been given everything you need for life and godliness right here. Oh, for all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of the Lord, it doors forever. I had a chance in 2017 to sit down with the then president of the Pocket Testament League at Revivals in the coffee shop. And he said, Chris, one of the things that's so powerful is what this little gospel of John has done in people's lives that have read it. We have story after story. And he goes, I just go back to that Peter passage where Peter tells us, you understand this is alive. And it has the chance to redeem men that read it. He said, we have countless stories of people handing out this gospel of John track and in the back, we put who they can contact and people reach out to us with all these stories. They had a story of this guy. He was at a gas station. He's filling up his car and he felt that still small voice for the Holy Spirit going, give this other guy a gospel of John. And he, he, he went back and forth with the Lord. I'm gonna die if I give that guy a gospel of John. He goes, I filled up my car. I put the thing away. I started my car so I could run as fast as I can. I reached in my glove compartment, got the gospel of John, and I reached out and handed it to him. And he took it and I got my car and drove off. All I said was, this is for you. He said, I'm driving down the road going, God, I probably shouldn't have driven off that fast, but thank you for giving me the courage to do that. And he sees lights coming at him at record speeds. He goes, it's the guy. I'm gonna die. I share the gospel, I'm going to die. He comes racing up behind him and, and he comes up to a stop sign, a stoplight, excuse me, where he has to stop. And he stops and my wife hearing the story said, that was his problem right there, she'll blow it. No, 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 that's not what, but, but he stops. The other car pulls up to him and he, and he, and he goes like this. Kids, that, that means roll your window down. I know that, that, that means, I know someone, what? what? What is that? That means roll your window down. And, um, okay, like, like that, okay. And, and, and he puts his window down and the guy goes, I've been running from the Lord and I've been asking God to just show himself to me in some way. And he said, and this big burly guy's teared up. He goes, thank you, you changed my life and drove off. Just giving him the word of God. 
Mike was telling me, he said, Chris, you might see it right there on the thing. There's a little red one. He goes, we were able to translate into Chinese and you can't have Bibles in China, but we can get the gospels of John in because it's not considered the whole Bible. And we got it in Chinese and we told them there was going to be two locations where they could come and just get it. And they showed up in thousands for it. That's a picture from Mike's phone. He said, Chris, they showed up in thousands, thousands at both locations. At one location, they waited over two hours for the gospel of John. They waited over two hours. And when they got in the home, and I might have four or five of them. What am I doing? I don't say that in judgment or condemnation. What am I doing? Your mentor. The one who died for you said, Chris, I wrote this for you. He can use your name. You can use your name. I want this here. I want to finish today with an apologetic thought. You've enjoyed us leveraging some apologetics. Dan Budafoco, one of the most um, revered trial lawyers out there, his law firm is just record upon record upon record. He wrote a book called Consider the Evidence You Might Want to Read. He wrote five reasons. Maybe you go, I don't know if I want to hear it from a pastor of whether I should read the Bible. Just take it from him. Five reasons it's the most important book you can ever read. One, this book is the first ever to be put on the printing press. The Gutenberg Print and Press, as this is the first book, it's this book has transformed the world. He writes, it would be impossible to claim to be an educated person in today's world without having some familiarity with the contents of this book. Second, he says, the second reason it's the most important book you could ever read, it's the most accurate book of all antiquity. This book is the most copied book of antiquity, written over a time period of some 1,500 years. It was completed approximately 2,000 years ago, yet in all the centuries that have passed, none of its contents have ever been found inaccurate, outside of some transcribal errors. It's translated directly from its original languages, and we have it. The most documented book of history is right in our hands. Third, he says, people are willing to die for this book. You notice this is the only book that's not allowed to be somewhere. What does it have inside it? People have died torturous deaths simply to gain access to this book. You may even now, he writes, be in a country where this book is discouraged or even banned outright. In many countries, it's a crime to distribute or even possess this book. You have inside your hands or in your house or in your glove compartment a book that is both hated and loved, but it won't go away. People have tried to destroy it. Massive empires have tried to get rid of this thing, yet it's still here. It won't go away. It contains a life-changing message. There's no other book that represents true freedom like the Bible. It's liberated so many from oppression by its clear teachings. It raises the dignity and rights of every human being ever born. It's truly an amazing and remarkable piece of writing. It contains clear teaching on the value and worth of every individual. You say, how can it, how can it have that when even, Chris, you were reading, it talks about like slavery and stuff and, and those things aren't good. See, here I want you to give you an apologetics point. The Bible describes things. The world wants to take what the Bible describes and make them prescriptions. It's not prescribing that, it's describing a time period. And your apologetics always understand what the Bible describes does not necessarily mean it prescribes. And so I'll have people say, well, the Bible teaches that. It's like, well, it's not prescribing that. It's describing that, it's not prescribing that. It is a remarkable book that frees everyone 
who follow it. And then fifth, it connects you to the history's most important figure, Jesus Christ. You have in your hands the ability, somebody this afternoon could open up this thing and read about Jesus Christ. You may have heard of the God-man, he writes, Jesus of Nazareth, also called the Christ. You may even think you know him, but if you have not read the account offered firsthand throughout this book, you will in effect know nothing definite about him. I wrote my apologetic note, the Bible connects you to the most important figure in human history. It is the single most historical, accurate, liberating, informative, helpful, and life-transforming book one can possibly read. And many of you have multiple copies. My, my evangelist stud, William Fay, he says, you know what, I, I understand that this is like a seed that is alive and can abide in somebody. He goes, I use it in evangelism. He says, first, I always know, remember this. There's a power to scripture. Just read it to him. Hebrews 4.12, for the word of God is living and active. It's sharper than a double-edged sword. It can pierce the hardest heart. He said, then there's a power to hearing it. Romans 10, 17, faith comes from hearing the message. So I read it to him. And then he says, there's a power of asking. Even Jesus replied when they were asking about scripture. He said, how do you read it? He goes, so I tell him, read that. How do you read it? He goes, and I have them reading the living and active word of God. Knowing I will give an account one day, Knowing I will throw my crowns down that Jesus has allowed me to do on earth, I want to have remarkable reverence here on earth. Remarkable reverence for my Savior. And so I want to come to him with respect and regard and responsibility. And I think the best way we can do that, Heavenly Father, I hope this makes you proud. I think the best way we could do that, church, is to get into his word and let it grow in us daily. The Gospel of John. Just a little book. I've ordered a few copies. It's gonna say remarkable book that you can give out. They'll be here in a couple weeks. If you're too antsy and you want one now, we did put some of these out in the foyers. Go be remarkable. This week... I beat up on social media sometimes. I'm not that good at social media. But um, this week on um, my uh, Instagram account, I'm gonna post seven verses. I thought, you know, here's a great thing social media can do. You could just put the word of God out. They might read it. I'm gonna post my seven remarkable verses. Do you have some remarkable verses in your life that have really altered your life? I'm gonna post mine. Feel free to screenshot that and post yours. Maybe at me, I'd like to see them. But let's get the word of God out. Let's sow some seeds. It's an evangelism tactic that requires zero talent. As we close in prayer today, I want to finish with just a short refrain of a song that I think the Lord would like to hear today in closing in regards to his holiness. Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for your truth. We do indeed respect you as the one we will one day give an account to. We regard you as the one who gave everything for us. And Lord, we listen to you because it's our responsibility to follow the truth. And we do so willingly because you are the truth. You are the Holy One. And we close by singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty.